Good morning. It's good to be back, I guess. Had a great time in Florida, and the weather was wonderful. And if God ever calls Red House to plant a church in Florida, I'm in. So, and I know many of you would be as well, too. But it is good to be back, and this morning we are going to continue our series Uh, on the book of James. In fact, we're getting near the end of our series on the book of James. This Sunday and next Sunday will be our last uh, messages in the book of James. And we've been going through a series based on this book called A Faith That Works. And as we have gone through what's been called the most practical book on Christian living, I pray that God has used the book of James to challenge your faith, to strengthen your faith, and to live out your faith. And last week, I appreciate Joseph Stanley uh, filling in, and he did, a, he did a wonderful job, and I heard great comments and, and watched it, and, and thank you, Joseph, for, for filling in and, and uh, truly explaining uh, God's Word. And, and Joseph challenged us to surrender all to Jesus. He challenged us to have a pure heart. He challenged us to be a friend of God instead of a friend of the world, and to run to God and find grace and submit to God. And when we do that, we will resist the devil. But this morning, my desire is for us to understand the biblical perspective we need to have as we go through life. There was a diehard football fan who had the opportunity to to attend the Super Bowl. He was sitting next to a woman, and next to her was an empty seat. And he inquired and said, ma'am, I'm just wondering why that seat next to you is empty. She said, it was my husband's, but he died. The man expressed his condolences and said, I'm sorry to hear that. But he went on to say, I'm surprised that another relative or friend didn't jump at the chance to take his spot for such a big game. She said, I was surprised too. They all insisted on going to the funeral. (laughs) The Super Bowl is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I mean... But no doubt, this woman had misplaced priorities. She was more concerned about the game than her family. And I am sure all of us have concerns in life. We're concerned about our health or the health of others. We're concerned about our children. We might be concerned about our our jobs or our finances or the economy or maybe how we're going to get everything done. Maybe we're concerned about the future. And many of the concerns we have are legitimate. But we must be careful not to allow these things to consume our lives and overwhelm us. Because we must focus our attention in life on what really matters. And this is what James writes about in the passage we're going to look at this morning. James tells us what really matters in life. And he challenges us to focus on what has eternal value. Because if we want a faith that works, instead of concerning ourselves with the things of the world, we will concern ourselves with the things of God. As we go through this passage this morning, I want you to evaluate your life and to see if you are focusing your attention on the proper concerns of life as James shows us. So let's read James chapter 4 starting in verse 13 and we'll go through chapter 5 and verse 11. And then I want to share with you three things that James addresses that we need to concern ourselves with more than anything else. Starting in James chapter 4, verse 13, James writes, 
Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are a bit of smoke that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So for the person who knows to do good and doesn't do it, it is a sin. Chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is ruined, your clothes are moth-eaten, your silver and gold are corroded. Their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who reap your fields cries out. The outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the land and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers, do not complain about one another so you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. The first thing I want to share with you this morning is that we need to be concerned with God's will for our lives over our will for our lives. And in verses fourteen, in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 4, James is specifically talking to believers. And he tells them, now listen. He says, come here now. It's like a parent getting on to their children. When my parents said, come here now, and then when they used my middle name, I knew they meant business and it wasn't good and I was in trouble. James has a strong word for these Christians, especially these Christian businessmen, because travel in the first century was very common. And James talks about a businessman who confidently plans to make a profit in the future had extensive travel plans. He desired to make money. They were deliberate planners. They were self-confident. They were self-reliant. They were planning where to go, when to go, how long to stay. They were planning as if they knew the outcome was sure as they pursued financial gain. And James is not upset with what they're doing. He's not upset by the fact that they're planning or that they're conducting business, but he's upset with how they are doing it. He says, you are boasting in your plans. You are talking about your plans as if they are certainties. You are showing arrogance because you're living your life in your own strength and you're leaving God out of the planning process. There is nothing wrong with planning. In fact, it's necessary to plan in life. As a family, you need to have a budget. Maybe you need to plan on having life insurance. Maybe you need to plan to save for retirement, or maybe you want to save up for college for your kids, or maybe even when you go on a trip, you like to plan, maybe deciding where to go, what to do, how long to stay. And sometimes I've been accused of being an over planner because I like to have a schedule when I go on a trip. 
I like to know what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it. And in college and seminary, I was probably the the most over-planning person there was. I would take my course schedule for the remaining years I had, and I would plan out each semester until when I thought I was going to graduate. And guess what? It did not work out until my last semester. I finally got it right that last semester. My planning did no good because I had no idea what the future was going to hold as I went through my college years and my seminary years. And we've been told all our lives, if you fail to plan, then plan to fail. And that is true. Because not planning is a sure way to not succeed. And if you want to fail and look foolish, don't plan. Planning is important. However, there's a right way to plan and a wrong way to plan. And James shows us the wrong way. He says, never boast about your plans or leave God out of your plans. And that's exactly what these Christian businessmen were doing. And James is reprimanding them for not having the proper perspective on life, especially when it comes to planning. James says they should have known better as they were being arrogant and presumptuous about the future, as they were ignoring the sovereignty and the providence of God. And in verse 14, it says, You don't know what will happen tomorrow. The most preferred translation of this verse, as it is in the Greek, is probably a semicolon after you don't know what will happen tomorrow, followed by the question, What is your life? And what James is saying is, How can you, being the kind of creatures you are, so frail and so mortal, presume to dictate the course of future events. Shama mentioned Jeremiah 29, 11. It said, God says, I know the plans I have for you. God didn't say, you know the plans you want to make for yourself. He said, I know the plans I have for you. And James answers his own question. What is your life? He says, your life is like a vapor. Your life is like mist. Your life is like smoke. You appear for a little little while and then you're gone. And what these businessmen failed to realize and what they failed to remember is that life is fleeting. That life is full of uncertainty. We are here one minute and gone the next. You think of the average lifespan is somewhere around 80 years today. You take eternity, you divide 80 by eternity... And what do you get? You get almost absolutely nothing. The life that we live on this earth is a little blimp on the radar screen of time and eternity. But often we fail to remember that life is transitory, that life is fleeting, that the future is so uncertain because we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow or next week. We have no idea if our health is going to be affected. We have no idea if we're going to experience accidental death ourselves or know someone who does. We have no idea if Christ is going to return or when he's going to return, I should say. I think of a couple of stories that have been in the news lately, and this one happened a few weeks ago. The golfers from the College of New Mexico who were traveling in West Texas, 13-year-old driving the vehicle, With the dad in the passenger seat, the left front tire blew. The kid lost control of the car, crashed into the van, carrying those golfers from that college. It exploded, and all but two of those 
golfers and coaches lost their lives. Think of the accident that happened in Oklahoma a few weeks ago. The six high school girls who left the high school for their lunch break. A small town in Oklahoma. They rolled through a stop sign and got blindsided by a a gravel truck. And all six of them lost their lives. The school has a population of about 280 and six of them, all seniors. Their life was gone in a minute. You saw the news earlier this week, the pileup in Pennsylvania because of the snow squall on the interstate. Over a 50, 60 car pileup, many were injured and three or four lost their lives and it could have been more, but thank God it wasn't. You see, life is transitory. Life is fleeting. We don't know what's going to happen when we leave this sanctuary. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And if our future is so uncertain, why talk about it? Why act like it is certain? Why act like it is a guarantee? Because it's not. And if we are not careful, we can become so consumed by the things of this world that we forget or ignore the spiritual realities of God. Proverbs 27, 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day might bring. Psalm 39, 5 and 6, the psalmist wrote, You indeed have made my day short in length, and my lifespan has nothing in your sight. Yes, every mortal man is only a vapor. Certainly man walks about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they frantically rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. Even Jesus spoke to this topic on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You see, because our time is short and our life is uncertain, We need to live each day as it's our last and live it to the fullest And instead of worrying about or boasting about the future. We need to realize we have got one shot to live our lives. We don't get a do-over. And the life that God gives us on this earth, we need to live with no regrets for his honor and for his glory. Matthew West has a song out called What If. It said, what if today is the only day I got? I don't want to waste it if it's my last shot. No regrets in the end. I want to know. I got no what ifs. I pray that each of us would live our lives with that attitude that we don't want to have any regrets, that we don't want to say, what if I had done this or what if I had done that? One of my favorite movies, The Dead Poets Society, Robin Williams, in that he says, carpe diem, which means seize the day. Make the most of the time that God has given you and we make the most of our lives and make the most of our times and we have no regrets by making sure our lives are god-focused and not self-focused and again there is nothing wrong with making plans however plan with the understanding that god may change no let me rephrase that god will probably change your plan Maybe through circumstances, maybe through a specific calling he he puts on your life. And we don't need to be so focused and rigid in our plans that we miss God's plan and God's purpose for our lives. 
And instead of saying our will be done, James says we should say the Lord's will be done. That's what he says in verse 15. He said instead of saying what your will should be, you should say if the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. You see, as we go through life, we need to demonstrate our dependence and our reliance upon him. Instead of being independent of him and relying upon ourselves. It's not enough to recognize that life is short and uncertain. We also must recognize that our lives are in his hands. He is the one who holds our next breath. He is the one who holds our future. And the continuance of our lives and the plans we make coming to fruition, they are not contingent upon our will, but they are contingent upon his will. And this is how we should view life and how we should plan. And instead of saying, this is my will, we should say, if the Lord's wills. And instead of asking God to bless our plans, we need to ask him to show us his plans. And we must come to the place in our lives where his plan for our lives need to be our plans. And I think a great example in Scripture is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times before Jesus went to the cross, he asked that the cup of suffering pass from him. He asked God, is there any other way? But then he said this, not my will, but your will be done. And I believe Jesus knew there was no other way. Jesus knew the reason that he came was to die an excruciating death on the cross and to shed his blood for us so we could have forgiveness of sin and relationship with God. But I believe Jesus wanted to give us a great example of what it means to follow the will of God, of what it means to submit to God, as James referred to in in verse 7 of chapter 4. And Jesus did nothing without the Father's permission, and neither should we. The decisions we make, how we live our lives, should be in accordance with His will and not separate from His will. You may ask yourself, does God want me to change jobs? Does God want me to make this purchase? How does God want to use me in life? How does God want to use me in ministry? What occupation does he want me to pursue? All the big decisions we make in life and many of the small decisions we make should not be made without seeking God. Why? Because he knows what lies ahead and we do not. And I've heard people say, I wish God would just lay it out all for me and show me my whole life. My answer is no, you don't. Because you wouldn't want to live the life God has for you if you knew exactly what was going to happen and when it was going to happen. Because God shows us what we need to know when we need to know it. And if we knew what lied ahead, if we knew the decisions we we were going to face, if we knew the circumstances we were going to go through, we would live our lives with fear instead of faith. And we must understand if we're going to do His will, we have to include Him in the planning and the decision-making process of our lives. And in verse 17, James says to not do so is sin. He says, so for the person who knows to do good and doesn't do it, it is sin. What's the good he's talking about? Doing the Lord's will. 
Now, when it comes to sin, there are two types of sin. There are sins of commission and sins of omission. The sins of commission is doing what God has said not to do. God said don't lie. God said don't steal. God said don't kill. God said don't commit sexual morality. God said don't have any other gods before him. God said don't show favoritism. And I could go on and on about the things God said not to do. And this is, how, this is what we often think sin is. But James reminds us that not doing what God has said to do, sins of omission, is just as serious as doing what God has said not to do, sins of commission. What has God told us to do? Love him above all else. He's told us to love others. He told us to love and pray for our enemies. He's told us to turn the other cheek. He's told us to control our tongue. He's told us to forgive others as he has forgiven us. He's told us to care for those in need. He told us to be bold in our faith. He told us to do his will in our lives. And to not do the things that God has told us to do is just as bad as doing the things God has told us not to do. They're both sin in God's eyes. Why? Because you're not doing the Lord's will. And faith that lasts, faith that works, is faith that is obedient to the will of God. And we have no excuse in excluding the Lord and making decisions and plans. We know we are to do it. We know we should do it. But when we do not do it, James says, it is sin. And we need to understand that we have little control over our lives and our future. You see, when we give our life to Christ as Savior and Lord, we give our life to Christ. We give him control of every area of our lives. And we need to understand the moment we ask him to be our Lord, we also ask him, or our Savior, we also ask him to be our Lord, which means we ask him to be our master, and we are to give him control of every area of our lives because our lives are no longer ours, but they are his. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says that our life is not our own, that we are bought with a price. What was that price? The blood of Jesus Christ. Galatians 2, 19 and 20, Paul writes, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God is the one who ordains our days. God is the one who holds our future. Proverbs 16, 9 says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Don't be prideful. Don't be arrogant or have an attitude of self-sufficiency. Don't think that you, need to, that you don't need to include God in your planning process. Don't think you can do in life what you want to do. Don't think that you can control the direction or the duration of your life. You might attempt to. But you're not going to be successful in doing so. And if you want to go through life doing your own thing, and if you want to go through life and have no direction, and if you don't want to fulfill God's purpose, then leave him out of the planning process and do your will instead of his. But I promise you, if you can do that, you can plan on being miserable, you can plan on being discouraged, and you can plan on being disappointed. So instead of trying to live your life independent of God, Instead of being concerned about tomorrow, 
Be concerned about how you can live for him today and about going through life with his guidance and with his direction. And let your dependence upon him be evident in the choices and the plans you make. Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. Commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. I want to challenge us to be God-focused. I want to challenge us to be concerned with His will and His direction for our lives and let Him make the decisions for us and we simply follow. Because He will do a much better job than you or I and we will be much better off. So instead of being concerned with your will, be concerned with God's will. Second thing I want to point out comes from chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. We need to be concerned with spiritual wealth over worldly wealth. James begins verse 1 just like he did verses 4 to 13. He says, come now, listen to me, you rich people. But notice he turns his attention from believers to wealthy landowners who are non-Christians. And these wealthy landowners, they are oppressing, they are persecuting the Christian community by hoarding their wealth. They're using their wealth selfishly and for their own purposes. They're cheating workers. They're not paying the workers for harvesting their crops. And these workers needed a steady income to provide for themselves and their family. And what they were doing is hard work. Harvesting crops is not easy. Growing up, my grandfather in Iowa, he was a a farmer. And he farmed hundreds and hundreds of acres. And every summer... I looked forward to going and visit, but I didn't look forward to going and working. And what we would do several days while we were there, we would do what's called walking beans. I don't know if you've ever walked beans, but, but I wouldn't recommend it. We physically walked a 40 or acre field of soybeans row by row with a hoe, getting out the weeds that were going to, 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 to choke the crops. It was hard work. I didn't get paid for it either. We got pizza. That was great, but, but I thought it was worth a little more than that. But, uh, but landowners, they were determined to increase their wealth by extorting and defrauding the poor. They were guilty of self-indulgence. They were living in luxury at the expense of their workers. They were not paying them for their labor. They were depriving them of their rights, their livelihood, and their right to make a living. They condemned the believers they were oppressing. Verse 6 says they were murdering them. One commentator said in the Jewish world to deprive a person of their support was the same as murdering them. Why? Because they didn't have enough to feed themselves or their family and eventually they would starve to death. And James is not condemning these wealthy landowners simply because they were wealthy. He's condemning them because they were misusing their power and their wealth. And in verses 2 and 3, James describes for us the problem with worldly wealth. He says this, Your wealth is ruined. Your clothes are moth-eaten. Your silver and gold are corroded. Their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You stored up treasure in the last days. What's the problem with worldly wealth? James makes it very clear that they're temporal. He says they're not going to last. He said they're going to rot. They're going to fade away. He says they're meaningless. They are of no value in regards to eternity. And just like life is fleeting, so are our possessions. Ecclesiastes 6.2 Solomon wrote, God gives some people great wealth and honor and everything they could ever want. 
But then he doesn't give them the chance to enjoy these things. They die. And someone else, even a stranger, ends up enjoying their wealth. This is meaningless. This is a sickening tragedy. Solomon said, you accumulate all this wealth for what reason? To leave it behind for someone else to probably throw away with and waste. This is exactly what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, James was religiously pulling from Jesus' teachings. And in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, Jesus addressed this, this subject of material wealth. He said, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moss and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And if we are not careful, we'll find ourselves in the same position of focusing on earthly treasures at the expense of heavenly treasures. And the world in which we live, it's easy to focus on materialism. We're bombarded by materialism. We got to have the latest and greatest in, in technology. We have to have the, the name brand clothes and the name brand shoes. We have to have the top of the line products. And the issue is not money in of itself. Paul told us what the issue is in 1 Timothy 6.10. He says, the love of money is the problem. Paul wrote, the love of money is the root of all evil. By craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Paul makes the point that those who have loved money, some who were strong Christians, they have walked away from their faith because their focus became on materialism instead of on God. See, the problem with wealth is money is most people get a taste of it and they want more. They never get enough. They don't know when to stop. There's a continual craving and they will do whatever it takes to maintain their lifestyle. They'll do whatever it takes to keep up with the world. Maybe even go in debt. The average debt of an American household is $155,622. I don't know who has access to all our records, but that's what they come up with. That includes mortgages, credit cards, loans, everything. The average debt of an American household is $156,000. The average credit card debt for the average household is over $7,000. Why? Just to get things that we will never use or we'll never look at again once they're purchased. Think about your closets. No, don't think about that. That's not a good thing to think of. Your garages, your closets, your storage units, they're full of stuff. I'm guilty. Guess what? It's full of stuff what? We haven't touched in years and haven't looked at in months. And what's it doing? It's sitting on a shelf, rotting away. I know my boy said when we die, they're going to have a big bonfire and just burn everything. Hopefully not the house, but... But you know what? When we die, when Johnny and I die, it's not going to matter how valuable that stuff was to us. Because they get to do with it what they want. And that's exactly the warning that Solomon gave and that Proverbs gives. Is that you accumulate all this wealth and all you do is you leave it behind for someone else to do what with? To waste it. To give it away. And what did that wealth buy you? It bought you absolutely nothing. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. 
makes it very clear that just because you have money and doesn't mean you're going to be happy. There's a lot of rich people who aren't happy today. You see, our happiness isn't in our possessions. Our happiness is in Christ. And Paul said in Philippians that we are to rejoice always. That we are to have joy in Christ always. Why? Because Jesus never changes. But if Satan can get us to buy into the world's philosophy of materialism, then we will take our eyes off Christ. We will lose our focus. And what our focus becomes, it reveals the status of our hearts. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus said this, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What Jesus means, if you focus on what the world has to offer, you're going to have a worldly mindset. But as believers, we are to set our minds on the things above, on the things of God, and not the things of the world. And that's exactly what Colossians 3, 2 said when Paul wrote, Set your mind on the things above and not on the things of this world. There was a rich man who was determined to take his wealth with him when he died. So he told his wife to get all the money together and put it in a sack, and he was going to hang it from the rafters in the attic. And he gave her specific instructions. He said, when my spirit is caught up in heaven, I'll just grab the sack on my way up. Well, he eventually died. The woman raced to the attic and only to find the money was still there. She said, I knew I should have put the sack in the basement. You can make your own sermon out of that, but... But whatever we accumulate here on earth, the point I'm making is, does not go with us when we die. It stays here. So why spend our lives accumulating wealth? Accumulating stuff we can't with us and that's not going to last and has no eternal value whatsoever. You see, when we hoard wealth, we are demonstrating false priorities. But we're also depriving others who may be in need. Several times throughout his teachings, Jesus told us to take care of those who are struggling, to take care of those who are in need. He told the rich young ruler to sell your possessions and give to the poor. You see, I believe that God just does not give us wealth and bless us just to satisfy our own pleasures. I believe God has blessed us what we have so we can also bless others. God wants us to be good stewards of our wealth. God wants us to share our wealth. God wants us to use it wisely and for his purposes. And of what God has given us, he wants us to give back to him through tithes and offerings, but he also wants us to give to others. So let's not be consumed with our wealth, but with Christ. And let's make it a priority to not keep our wealth for ourselves. But if we hoard our wealth, If we keep our wealth for ourselves, if our wealth is our focus, it is a sin and it grieves the heart of God. And we become no different than these landowners. And these landowners, while accumulating wealth for themselves, James also reminds them that they're ignoring the judgment to come. In verse 1, he says, there are miseries that are coming on you. In verse 3, he says, Your possessions will witness against you, will eat your flesh like fire. In verse 4, he says, The pay you withheld from the workers who reaped your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvest has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
Verse 5, he says, you have fattened your hearts on the day of slaughter. You see, these wealthy landowners, they had no foundation for eternity. They had no hope for the life to come. And they are going to weep and wail because of the misery that is going to come their way at the time of judgment. And James says that even the misuse of their wealth is going to stand as a witness against them. When they stand before God, he said it's going to eat their flesh like fire. I believe that's an illusion that these landowners, because they don't know Christ, because God is not their focus, they're going to spend eternity in hell. And he's basically saying when God judges you, Your own flesh will be eaten by fire in the same way that corrosion has eaten your gold and your silver. You see, instead of doing what is necessary to avoid judgment and incurring the wrath of God, they are incurring greater guilt. They're storing up wrath. They're fattening themselves up for the kill, James says. Why? Because their possessions are so much more important than having a relationship with God. You know, and this should be a powerful motivation for us to share our wealth and not hoard it. Why? Because we should be thankful for the grace of God that has already been displayed in our lives. Everything we have, everything we are is only because of God's grace. He owns all that we have anyway, so why keep it to ourselves? It should also be motivation because the judgment of God is to come. And we are going to be accountable for our actions, including what we do with what God has blessed us with. So I ask you, what is your focus in life? Are you focused on accumulating wealth for yourself? Are you focused on worldly possessions or storing up spiritual wealth and treasures in heaven? What's most important to you, the things of the world or the things of God? And why go down the path? of one day having the abuse of our wealth testify against us as we stand before God. Instead, why not be concerned with storing up treasures in heaven where if you've given your life to Christ, you're going to spend eternity and those treasures are going to last forever. Let's be concerned with spiritual wealth that is eternal and not worldly wealth that is temporal last thing I want to say is we need to be concerned with the coming of Christ over the circumstances of life. We need to be concerned with the coming of Christ over the circumstances of life. In these verses, James turns his attention back to believers who are suffering and who are being persecuted by the wealthy landowners he just addressed. And he's focusing on attitudes that that these Christians who are being persecuted need to adopt and lie to the return of Christ in the coming judgment. And the attitudes that James says these believers need to adopt needs to be the same attitudes that we need to adopt. Because often in life we get tunnel vision. We focus on what is happening in the moment or what is about to come. And that's natural. That's human. But it's not necessarily spiritual. And basically James is saying don't focus on your circumstances. Don't focus on the fact that you're being oppressed. Instead look at what is to come. Focus on the coming of Christ. And James is not minimizing their circumstances, but he's giving them the proper perspective that they should have in the midst of their circumstances. And and what you or I are going through, what we're about to face, it may not look good now, but we need to be mindful that help is on the way. 
Because Jesus is not only going to come and judge the sinful, but he's also going to come and he's going to deliver the faithful. And what we need to recognize is that Christ is coming again. It is going to happen. It is certain. You remember when Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, the two angels appeared to the disciples and said, Why are you so fearful? Why are you so concerned? Because the same way that Jesus went up, he's going to return in that same way. You see, until he returns, though, James reminds us of some things we need to do first. In verse 7, he says that we need to be patient. He says, brothers, be patient until the Lord is coming. And then he gives the example of the farmer who has to be patient. Why does the farmer have to be patient? Because he prepares the field, he sows the seed, and he waits for the crop to grow. But the farmer can do little to the effect of outcome of the seeds he has planted. The farmer is dependent upon the, the early rains and the late rains, it says, or the spring and autumn rains. And the farmer must watch and pray and wait for the right amount of rain at exactly the right time. And James says this is the kind of patience that we as believers need to display regardless of what we're going through. And there's a right way to wait and a wrong way to wait. We are not to sit around and do nothing and simply wait. We are not to become anxious. We are not to worry. We are not to get impatient with God. We are to wait on God. Because what happens when we become impatient? We try to take control of the situation. We try to make things happen. And when we act on our impatience, it only makes things worse. And it shows a lack of trust in God. And I must admit, I am not the most patient person in the world. I don't like to wait. I've gotten better, but I'm still a work in progress. But when we wait on God, it shows we have faith in God. And in light of the second coming of Christ, we are continued to live out our faith. We are to be obedient to God until he comes again. James tells these believers, he says, stand firm in your faith. He says, strengthen your hearts. Prepare yourself for the constant struggles against sin and the difficulties of life. Fix your heart on God and not waver when suffering comes. And why be patient? Why not become anxious? Why be steadfast in our faith? Because James says Jesus is coming again. He said in verse 8 at the end, he says, Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. And we need to realize that we are living in the last days. When did the last days begin? The last days began with the death and resurrection of Christ. And ever since Jesus died and rose again, we've read where Jesus can come any moment. And we need to remember that each day we live brings us one day closer to his return. And we must be prepared and we must be ready. And someone may ask, well, hasn't the return of Christ been promised for over 2,000 years and Jesus hasn't come yet? That's true, but think about this. Just like 80 divided by eternity is not much, so is 2,000 divided by eternity. It's still a blimp on the radar screen of time and eternity. And we need to remember that time is relative to God. God is not bound by time, but God transcends time. One day to God is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. You see, what may seem like an eternity to us is a second to God. 
And the issue for us should not be how long until he returns or when he is going to return. But we should be concerned with how we are going to live until he returns. You see, and we, and the motivation for us for the return of Christ is one, not only should we live for God, but we should desire to share God with us. Because we have no idea when Jesus is going to come, but when he does, those who have not received Christ, those who have not given their life to Christ, they will not have another opportunity once Jesus returns. And they'll spend eternity in a place called hell, forever separated from the presence of God. And how tragic it would be for Christ to come while we who claim to follow Christ are doing something we shouldn't be doing. How tragic for Christ to come and find us not living out our faith and not living for him. So until he does return, we need to be patient. We need to stand firm. We need to fix our eyes on him. Second thing we should do is we shouldn't complain about or criticize one another. James says in verse 9, Do not complain about one another so you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. James was warning against the flippant use of the tongue. Why did he have to tell them don't criticize, don't complain? Because under the pressure of poverty and persecution, they began to take their frustrations out on one another. You see, and if we're not careful, this is what happens in our lives. We complain, we grumble. When? When usually we're under pressure, when we're under stress, when things don't go our way, when we face difficult times. We, we vent that pressure from work or from school or financial destruct, uh, struggles or sickness. And when we criticize others and grumble and complain about others, what we're doing is we're contradicting the command of God to love our neighbor. And we place ourselves in judgment over others. Matthew 7, 1, God said, don't judge lest you be judged. James 4, 12, James says, there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. James 5, 9 says, look, the judge stands at the door. What James is saying is when we judge others, we take the rightful place of God as the only judge. We need to refrain from speech that is harmful. We need to refrain from speech that is hurtful. We need to refrain from speech that causes friction in our relationships. And throughout the book of James, the use of the tongue was a major factor in the problems that James was addressing. And if we were to analyze the problems we face, I would say many of them are caused by the misuse of our tongue. And what we need to understand is for believers, not only is the return of Christ a time of deliverance, it's also a time for judgment for us as believers. Because one day we're going to have to stand before God. We're going to have given account of the choices we make, including our words and our actions. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, Solomon wrote, All's been said, all's been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. James also says we need to persevere until Christ returns. He says we need to be willing to suffer and endure, and we need to look up and not give up. And James gives a couple examples from Scripture that these believers who were being persecuted and oppressed would have been very familiar with. He says you need to be like the prophets 
who were persecuted and who suffered, but, but who kept on preaching the message of God. Don't give up because of your circumstances. The prophets didn't give up, and you don't need to give up either. He also mentioned Job. And we know the story of Job, even though everything was taken from him. Even though he struggled and even though he did question God. The one thing that Job didn't do is he never abandoned his faith. As one commentator put it, the flame of Job's faith was never extinguished in his heart. In the midst of his trials and his testing, which Job didn't fully understand, he didn't abandon God. He clung to God. He continued to hope in Him. He waited for God to rescue him from his suffering, and God delivered him. God blessed him. God restored him. Read Job chapter 42. God gave him so much more than he had to begin with. And when difficult times come, we need to persevere like Job and the prophets. We need to be willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. And if we are patient, if we persevere in our suffering, we will be blessed and just as job and the prophets were blessed for their faithfulness were rewarded for their faithfulness by a god who is full of compassion and mercy so will we be rewarded and blessed for our faithfulness there's a song out by jordan Feliz called jesus is coming back he says have you ever thought the world has kind of lost its way crazy as it seems yeah i know it's going to be okay it doesn't scare me it's temporary There's something better we got forever. And it won't be long because we know our help is on the way. So keep your head up. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. No, don't give up. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And when the world gets complicated, we're going to keep on celebrating because we know Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Don't give up. Keep your head up and look up, knowing that Jesus is going to return. I love what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. In 2 Corinthians four seventeen, Paul went on to write, Our present troubles are small and won't last long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. You see, what we face in this life is temporary. And it does not compare to what we will experience in the life to come, which will be eternal. Tom Landry, who was a strong Christian and a very successful pro football coach for the Dallas Cowboys in the 60s, 70s, and most of the 80s, he was asked by someone, why was he so successful? This was his answer. He says, in 1958, I did something everyone who's been successful must do. I determined priorities for my life. God, family, and football. You see, Tom Landry had his priorities in order. He focused on what mattered most. And if someone were to ask you, what are you most concerned about in life? What would your response be? Would you say you're more concerned about God's will or your will? Would you say you're more concerned about accumulating wealth on this earth? Are you more concerned about accumulating wealth? And treasures in heaven. Would you say that you're more concerned about your circumstances or you're more excited and more focused on the return of Christ? If you want to have a faith that works, if you want to have a faith that pleases God, then you must have the proper concerns in life. 
That means you need to follow his will and not your will. You need to store up treasures in heaven and not on earth. And you need to be excited about the return of Christ and live for him until he comes again, regardless of your circumstances. And if you are concerned about what really matters, then I promise you that all the other concerns of your life will be taken care of. Maybe you're here this morning and you're watching online and you've never given your life to Christ. What you should be most concerned about is where you're going to spend eternity. Because without Christ, it doesn't matter what you do on this earth. Because without Christ, you're going to spend eternity forever separated from God in a place called hell. And your number one priority Your number one concern should be giving your life to God and beginning a relationship with Him today. Or maybe you're here this morning and you put your faith in Christ. I just got a couple of simple questions for you. Is your life God-focused or self-focused? Are you more concerned about the things of God or the things of this world? Are you living for Him or for yourself? In a moment, we're going to have a song of commitment. And during that time, I just want you to allow God to examine your heart and examine your life. And if you need to come to know Christ, I'd be glad to show you this morning how you can give your life to Him. But maybe you're struggling in one of these areas as a believer. Maybe you're more focused on what you want to do than what God wants you to do. Maybe you're more focused on accumulating wealth here instead of living for God and and storing up treasures in heaven. Or maybe you're so concerned about your circumstances, you say, you don't understand, there's just so much going on in my life. I may not understand to know, but I know the one who does. And he's concerned about you, and he loves you, and he wants your focus to be on him. And he wants you to remember that Jesus is coming back and help is on the way. But in the meantime, commit to live for him and remember what he's done for you. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning and just thank you for this time that we've had in your word. Lord, I thank you for this challenge from the book of James. Lord, it's some strong words. Lord, it's some some things that we really need to think about and really need to digest. Because God, how often are we guilty in our own lives of of doing what we want to do instead of seeking what you want? God, how guilty are we of being so concerned about our wealth and our financial status or that we try to do whatever we can to accumulate things here, forgetting that these things don't last. The only things that last are the things that we store up in heaven. Or God, maybe we're so focused on our circumstances, we're so fixated on our circumstances that that we've forgotten about you. And Lord, may our focus be on Christ. May our focus be on your truth and your word and your promises. And Father, I pray this morning, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, I pray today would be their day of salvation. They would recognize, God, the most important thing they need to do is give their life to you. Father, for us who've made the decision to follow you, may we just allow you to examine our hearts. And God, if we need to make changes in our lives, maybe we need to to change our perspective, change our priorities, change our focus. Reveal that to us this morning. We love you. 
We praise you. We thank you for your word and your truth, and most of all, your son, Jesus. And we just ask all these things in your name. Amen. If you need to come this morning and just spend some time at this altar, maybe God has spoken to you about something that needs to change in your life. Or maybe you need to come to know Christ again. We'd love to share with you how you can do that because don't leave this service. Don't leave this church without knowing where you're going to spend eternity because you have no idea when your time's going to be up. Our lives are like a vapor. They're like a mist. Maybe you want to join Red House Baptist Church or maybe God's called you to believer's baptism. You've given your life to Christ, but you've never been baptized. Maybe there's other decisions you need to make. I just want to ask you to be obedient to Christ this morning. Let's stand as we sing. Take my hand.